0: To invite you to come back to your seat, we're gonna get started. Welcome to Providence Road. We are glad that you're here. My name is Jeremy, I'm one of the pastors here at the church, especially if you're a guest with us. Uh, love that you came, love that you're here. We're honored that you would choose to spend I'm a Sunday morning worshiping with us. We're continuing on in our series um, where we're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, So I'm going to read the passage um, and we'll uh, jump in. If you want to follow along in a Bible, which I think oftentimes is a good thing, um, there are Bibles about under every other seat, I believe, in most rows. If you want to follow along, um, you can find it there. 1 Corinthians is about three-fourths of the way-ish through the Bible. Um, It'll be the beginning of chapter 2 is where we'll be. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that. That's our gift to you. We think everyone should have a physical Bible at home if you don't have one. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're just going to read through verse 5 today. Paul says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Once again, we we thank you that as Paul is going to tell us today that the power... And the might is not found in the teacher or the preacher or um, human wisdom. The, The power is found in the gospel, in your word, as the Spirit works through those things. So we're thankful that you've given us your word. You've spoken to us. You've revealed yourself to us in your word. And that it's alive and it's active and it does things to us when we study it. And we're so thankful for that aspect of your grace and your mercy that you give us, that we can know you. We can know you um, relationally because of your word. So I pray today as we walk through this passage, um, help us understand it. Pray that it would change our minds, would change our hearts, and would change the way we live when we leave this place. And it's for your good and our joy. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So... Um, today, Paul is going to get into chapter 2. Chapter 1, if you remember, just to set this up, um, he began really in in about verse 10 in chapter 1. He talks about this idea of unity, right? Unity. And um, he's really concerned, and he's appealing to them that there may not be divisions among them, he says. I don't, I don't want, you, I want you to be unified. I don't want there to be factions. I don't want you to be split on things. And in that particular chapter, chapter 1, we saw that they were split primarily in following different leaders in the church. In that day and age in Corinth that we've talked about, that the wisdom and how humans kind of displayed that wisdom and spoke about that wisdom was a big deal. So they were taking that, bringing it into the church, the Christians in Corinth were, and aligning themselves with different human leaders and teachers based off of their perceived wisdom. They kind of brought what they, the culture would do. They brought it into the church, and this was creating divisions. So Paul says, cut it out. Stop. And last week, we, he, Paul showed us that um, it was the, the gospel is, is the key to everything. And the cross of Christ, and the, the cross of Christ is, um, is foolishness to the Greeks. And it's a stumbling block to the Jews, Paul said last week. And this, don't, don't try to polish this message up. Don't try to make this message like a message you would hear in this city. Because it's foolishness. So it's different. It's, it's, uh, it's alien. It's otherworldly than the wisdom you hear in your everyday life, he's telling the church. So stop being divided over these silly things and all, and all of you be focused on the gospel. And he ends the chapter by, by saying that we shouldn't boast in anything but God. Right? like no, We shouldn't boast in anything. Like God gives it all to us, so therefore he should be the object of our boast. And we all know from, from this idea of boasting that people who boast and people who are arrogant and they kind of wear that kind of out there on their sleeve, it's, it's not very attractive. It's off-putting, and most of us would say that. People who are arrogant and prideful and are boasting, especially when they have no reason to boast couple of examples that I was thinking about were, let's take the, the seven-foot basketball player that can dunk. Like, and he, like, wants to boast in the fact that he could dunk. And if I was talking to that guy, I would say, God made you to dunk. You're seven foot. Like, God made you seven foot. And if you're seven foot and you couldn't dunk, there's a problem. Sorry if you seven-footers in here. I don't think we have any, but um, you should be able to dunk if you're seven foot. Now, there's other things that come with basketball that you work hard and get developed and develop skills, all those things, but just the aspect of dunking, God made you to be a dunker. So don't boast in that. If anybody any boast in God. If you have a really high IQ and you were just born with that and you're wired to solve difficult problems and you're just very very intelligent. Like don't boast in your intelligence. Boast in God because he created you that way. He made you that way, right? And this is kind of common sense for us. If someone was born into um, wealth and a lot of money, and that was just kind of how they were born into their family, like don't boast in your wealth, right? Like boast in the fact that God took care of you by allowing you to be born into a family that had wealth. And I think we see all those things, and we would say, yeah, that makes sense. But how many of us, especially let's just say those of you in the room who maybe are atheists, who don't believe in God, like where do you redirect your boasting? Like if someone gives you a compliment or you're really good at something, if you don't believe in God, where do you point to say, this is the person who allowed me to do this? Or this is the thing that gave me that? Or maybe you are not an atheist, but maybe you're not, you would consider yourself a Christian, same kind of situation. If, if you can't point back to Jesus and to God being the one who allows you to do the things you do, where do you point to? Where do you deflect that praise? And for sure as Christians, this is what Paul's trying to get, if you're a Christian, and you're a follower of Jesus, why, why do we even attempt to boast in anything good we do? All of these good gifts come from God. All the abilities we have and the skills, all of those things are from God. We're hardwired, we're fashioned, we're created to do those good works. And that's what he's trying to get at to the first Corinthians. And this is a theme throughout this book, because as, as we get into spiritual gifts and being unselfish, and, and all of these kinds of things. This will come up over and over and over. Okay, so this idea of boasting is not attractive. And this is where Paul kind of jumps off on it. This is, this, chapter 2 is connected to the end of chapter 1. So let's read this first verse of chapter uh, 2 here. And I, Paul is saying this, so he's, he's including himself in this group of people who should not boast, right? And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, everybody, the, the, the church, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Okay? He's coming to them and saying, this is who I am. Right? I'm with you here. Like I'm not trying to boast. I'm trying to lay aside all the things that I could boast in and and, and focus on proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Okay, and, and so what he's trying to do here also is trying to get them to remember, remember, remember this when they're reading this uh, letter. It's probably anywhere from three to five years since Paul had been there. So he's trying to make, cause them to remember, hey, remember when I came to you and I preached the gospel and I planted this church, remember. Like, I, didn't, I wasn't using this eloquent speech. I wasn't trying to impress you of how gifted I was. I was just trying to, 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 to proclaim to you the testimony of God. And that's it. And that's what I was aiming for. Let's look at verse 2. So he's saying, um, I didn't do that. But what I did was I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, did Paul know other things besides Jesus Christ? Absolutely. This is hyperbole. Paul is just trying to go in comparison to Jesus, in comparison to the gospel, into the cross, into the resurrection. It was like I didn't care about anything else. I tried not to know anything else. I tried to not build my ministry and my speaking on anything else but the cross. And if Paul had like a a thesis statement for these five verses, I think that the, the power is not in the preacher or the teacher or the messenger. The power is in the spirit, is in the gospel. That's where the power comes from. God's power is at work in our weakness. And this is what Paul's main point of this passage is. And so again, he's not, he's not trying to say he's, he's, he's against philosophy or he's against wisdom, but what he is trying to do, if we remember the context, it was popular in that day and age. These, these sophists and philosophers and orators would come, and they would speak, and um, they, would, they would use flowery language, and they were wanting people to kind of focus on them more than their message. Their message was really empty. There was no content to what they were saying. It was almost like a sport of trying to be the best in rhetoric or being an orator. And so the content was just weak and it was nothing. And so what Paul's saying, he's not saying I'm against rhetoric or I'm against persuasion. He was about those things if you read his sermons. But what he's saying is that he's trying to persuade about the gospel. He's trying to use rhetoric to get you to believe in the message, not trying to lift up his ability to use um, this really fancy um, speech. His singular focus is on the cross and on the gospel. That was his primary focus. And how much of this applies to us in our ministry? This isn't just a, a preacher teacher thing. That's who Paul is. So that's the example he's given. But um, as you go out and you're living your, your life, um, how often do you think about that it's the, the, the Spirit working in you? It's not dependent upon your intellect or how smart you are or how well put or how, how, um, how, how well put you, you make theological statements. Um, often when we're out doing ministry, we can get uh, fearful and afraid and we lack confidence when we're um, trying to counsel or serve, or especially when we're doing, trying to do evangelism and talk to somebody about Jesus. So often we just kind of assume, we, we would say this, yes, I agree with you, Paul, here, but then we go out and all the pressure's on us. We put so much weight upon us. I have to have the right answers. Or what if they say this? Or what if they think this about me? What if I'm not clear enough when I'm explaining and talking about Jesus? And what Paul would tell us is like, don't worry about it. The power is in the spirit. The power is in the gospel. The power is in the message. So just preach the gospel and trust and have confidence in boldness when we go out and do ministry as all of us as followers of Jesus are called to do. It's kind of a question that we could ask as it relates to this. And I think Paul would ask this of us. He would say probably, if the people that were around you, those of us who are followers of Jesus, around you consistently, would they say about you, yeah, he or she knows nothing but Jesus? Like like that's all they talk about. And that, that their life is consumed by Jesus, the cross and the resurrection. And if they were to spend any length of time with you, they could easily see their life is governed by the gospel governed by Jesus, governed by the Word, and the power of the Spirit is at display in your life. Is that something people that know you well would say? And the same question would be asked for us as a church, right? Like Providence Road. If people were to spend any length of time in the church, would they say, above and beyond everything else, that church strives to make Jesus great, His name famous. They want to bank everything on the gospel in the name of Jesus and the good news of Jesus. And that's what we try to do. We try to make things all come back to that because I think that's what Paul is saying here. And he would ask us that. Are you making Jesus the main thing? Are you making the gospel the main thing? Because that's what the Spirit works through. Okay, let's look at verse 3. It says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Okay, and he moves now to his kind of physical appearance. Okay, this is Paul being vulnerable here. Paul's a, he's a tough dude, right? Like he, he's been in prison. He's faced persecution. He's been shipwrecked. Like, this guy has taken a toll for the gospel, yet he says, I was with you. I was weak when I was among you, and I was fearful. I was afraid, and I was trembling. Now, what was, he, what was his source of fear? Why was he trembling? Probably because of the task. Like, he, he, he knew the weight of his calling to preach the gospel where the gospel had never been preached before, and that, that was... It was, it was, that was hard for him to think about. That was a heavy weight for him to carry. It was probably involved a little bit, as he thinks of God, there's probably a little healthy fear um, of, of God from Paul because he, Paul, he'd given Paul a message. He was God's ambassador. He was God's messenger that was, he was proclaiming the gospel through him. But it also, didn't talk about it here, but Paul um, wasn't um, a, the most attractive guy. Look at Second Corinthians 10.10. 10. This is another letter after 1 Corinthians that would be written to the Corinthians. This is Paul talking about what people say about him. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong. That's guys are smart, dude, right? They say I'm smart, they say I can write pretty well, I know my theology, um, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. So again, he's not very pleasant to look at and I'm not really impressed by his language. Like I'm not really captivated, I'm not entertained um, by just the way he speaks. And Paul would say, uh, obviously, like, I, I really don't care, right? Like, that's his whole point. Like, I don't care because that stuff can get in the way of my primary message. But the fact that Paul addresses it to the Corinthian church in the second letter must have been a big deal, right? People must have been talking about how unattractive he was, or he would, maybe he was hard to look at, or he just wasn't very impressive compared to all the other speakers and orators in that day and age, especially in a city like... Corinth. Um, uh, Sometimes some extra biblical writers, historians during um, the the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century is actually guys that have written that actually called him ugly. (laughs) They said that Paul was an ugly guy. They would basically say that some historians did. Um, So Paul knew very well his appearance, right? Wasn't ashamed of it. But there was also some vulnerability. There's some, there's some fear there based off on the task. I don't think he really cared what people thought about him. I don't think that's what he was scared about. Um, but this task was, was heavy for him. Two examples from church history on this. Um, there's a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards um, who lived in the, 17th, or the 1700s. And he was a major part of the, the First Great Awakening And um, Jonathan Edwards, he was known really for um, his theology, his writing, wrote a bunch of books, brilliant guy. Most people, not just church people, but even uh, people just uh, historians think that he may have been one of the smartest guys to ever live in the United States. He was that brilliant. But when he would preach, he would literally read his manuscript. He would set up a podium or whatever they were using, and he would just literally read word by word for hours, and people would just get saved. Just all over the place, people would get saved. God used him to start that the the first great awakening, right? And so even Jonathan Edwards, like just read and didn't really care about speaking. Another guy, um, D. L. Moody, who was a a guy that lived in the eighteen hundreds, evangelist, led hundreds and thousands of people to Jesus. When you read about him, they would say this guy spoke like he was very uneducated. Very kind of backwoods country, like you could barely understand him. There were even people like when he started setting up his preaching tour, they didn't want him to go to the city centers like Chicago and New York and the East Coast and the Ivy League schools because they were afraid that he was going to get mocked so bad and they were going to run him off the stage because he just, he wasn't a good speaker at all. At horrible grammar, horrible grammar. And yet he would go into these places and he didn't care. He would preach the gospel. And again, thousands of people came to know Jesus from his ministry. These are two of the giants of the evangelism and leading people to Jesus. And they were both um, not really worried about what people thought of them in the way they spoke. They were concerned with the message more than anything. Let's look at verse four. It's probably the most important verse in this passage. In my speech, in my message were not implausible words of wisdom, you know, just that flowery language that that culture was used to, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Okay? Again, not, um, not, he's not against persuasion. I spoke about that a minute ago. He, he doesn't, he's not against trying to convince people. He's not against wisdom. He's not against those things. He just doesn't want those things to be the main thing. He wants the gospel to be the main thing. Uh, let's look at 1 Thessalonians 1 through 5. Listen here how Paul, in another letter to the church in Thessalonica, kind of ties the gospel and the word and the Holy Spirit together. I think this is important for how we view kinda, the Holy Spirit working through the gospel. Verse 5 says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Right? So what Paul is saying in this other letter is saying that the gospel and the Holy Spirit are connected. They're related. They work together. So you can't, you can't just preach the gospel and it not be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit works through the gospel. That's what gives the gospel its power. And the Holy Spirit works out of the gospel it empowers the gospel. So they go hand in hand. So whenever you talk about the gospel, you almost have to talk about the Holy Spirit and vice versa, right? So these two things are linked. Then you have Romans 1.16. We read it last week. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power. There's a power word again. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Okay, so these things have power. The gospel and the Holy Spirit are the sources of power um, in preaching and in ministry and as we live our life as followers of Jesus. Now, I want to start talking about why this is important and get a little bit more practical here. Um, if you don't believe in verse four here, that it's the, it's the spirit that brings the power, if you think that it's, it's about the man or the woman, the teacher, the preacher, whatever, then you're going to have problems. Because here's the deal. If you believe that a human being can overcome the stubbornness of a person, it changes the way you do ministry. It'll change the way you do ministry in your own life, in my own life, and it'll also change the way we do ministry as a church. For example, as a church, um, if we think we can overcome someone's stubborn heart, it's going to change the way we preach. It's going to change how we do worship through music. It's going to change how we set up a Sunday. It's going to change how maybe the order of some things, how we do things. Here's an example. If, if, If I believe that I, in my words, could overcome your stubbornness, and this is for non-Christians and Christians, if I could overcome your stubbornness, then, then what I would do is I'd probably try to make you feel really bad about yourself, right? I would just bring manipulation. I would make you feel bad about where you are in life. I would really try to focus on your sin and show you how you're not living your best life now and just make you feel really bad. And nobody wants to sit there and feel bad. And then if, and if I was worried, trying to overcome your stubbornness, then I would quickly move in and talk about Jesus and say, Jesus is the answer to, to help you feel better. Now, if I did that and, I, and nobody wants to sit there and feel bad, if I said, Jesus is the answer to make you feel better, who wants some? Who wants Jesus? Of course, everyone's going to say, I want Jesus because I don't want to feel bad right now. I'm feeling really bad and just, I just want these feelings to be off of me. Yes, I want Jesus, but that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. That's that's not found anywhere in the scriptures. There's no power there. There was power through me because I made people feel really, really bad. And then I brought some good news to them to get those feelings away. There's no power in that, though. Those people aren't saved. That's not how people come to know Jesus. How we want to do it would be complete and, and clear in how we preach the gospel. The way that God intended him to be before sin came into the world. Things were perfect. Sin comes into the world, and now we're, we're, we're under the wrath of God apart from Jesus. That Jesus comes into the world to redeem us through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return. He redeems us. He brings us back into God's family. And that is the good news. It's Jesus' work that, that, that makes us reunited to God the way it was supposed to be in the beginning. But if it's just about having our negative feelings or or having our guilt taken away, that's a human-centered approach to preaching the gospel. And we need to be careful of that. Because becoming a Christian is primarily being united to Jesus and being brought back into a relationship in God uh, rather than having negative feelings be removed or having something in my life get better because of Jesus. Now, will that happen? Hopefully. But that's not the reason why we become Christians, to help our lives get better. We become Christians because we, we love a person. We believe in a person. We believe we needed this person, Jesus, to die for us and to rise again and to save us. That's why we become followers of Jesus. And that's the gospel. We get Jesus, not just positive feelings. We get Jesus. And it also uh, affects the way you do ministry where you're at. Because again, if I say, hey, it's up to you to overcome a stubborn person's heart, that puts a lot of weight on you in how you do counseling how you do evangelism, right? Because if I'm saying, hey, it's all up to you. You have to know the right answers. You have to be really persuasive. You have to maybe even use some manipulation to counsel someone or to share the gospel with someone. No, that sounds awful. That, sound, that would be, that's all the weight on us as humans. And I, I know I can't handle that weight. I'm guessing you can't handle that weight either. The good news is that the power is in the spirit. Our role is to preach the gospel. And this simplifies everything for us, right? Should simplify this for your own life and us as a church. Because here it is. It's love people really, really well, preach the whole gospel and make it really, really complete and then pray like crazy and trust that God is going to move in people's hearts. Like that's, that's ministry right there, right? Love people, preach the gospel really clearly. Doesn't have to be overly like theological, but just preach the gospel clearly and pray and expect like crazy God to move in people's lives. And if that happens, guess if people, if people change and people get saved, guess who gets the glory? God does. Because it's, it's so simple for us. We're not patting ourselves on the back. We're not boasting in our own thing because we didn't do anything crazy. We just were very simple in our approach. And that again, that goes back for, for how you um, uh, do ministry in your own life and how we do ministry as a church. Um, let's look at verse five. Verse five. Um, So that your faith, so we do that. We trust in God. We trust in the Spirit and the power. So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. This is very simple, straightforward, right? So if you think that wisdom of man saved you, if you thought an articulate sermon saved you, or some principles or some teaching save you, then who's going to get the glory? And where are you going to put your faith? You're going to put your faith in a person or a belief system or a worldview or a way, of, a way of seeing the world. And those things don't save you. Those things don't have power. You can't get powerful saving faith from those things. So this is what Paul is saying here. Like another question for us here is where are we getting our wisdom? Like just in a given day as followers of Jesus, are we shaped more by the world's wisdom? By wisdom that were, we're thought up by men and women? Or are we getting, or primarily are we getting shaped by the word, the gospel, what God says about us and not what the world says about us. A good thing to think about. Um, another way to say this, and this is from the message. Again, the message isn't a translation. I think it's more of a, of a commentary, but I really like how it explains this verse. Listen to this. God's spirit and God's power did it, which made it clear that your life of faith is a response to God's power, not some fancy mental or emotional footwork by me or anyone else. That's the message's translation of, um, or explanation, of verse 5. Um, so, what are some implications? I've talked about a few of those. I want to get practical here and show why, why this is important. I think how it has uh, very um, practical implications for our lives. Uh, first off, how it affects the church, right? How does it affect the church? Well, it definitely affects how we preach, it affects how we preach. And so um, we don't talk about this a lot here because, it, again, it didn't, it didn't come up necessarily, but it, it's come up in the scripture, so I want to talk about it briefly. This is why we do what we do as a, in regards to preaching. We preach in something that's called the expository preaching method, or uh, we want to preach expository sermons or expositional preaching. Here's a definition of it from Tim Keller. It'll be up on the screens. Expository preaching grounds the message in the text so that all the sermon's points are the points in the text. And it majors or focuses in the text's major ideas. It aligns the interpretation of the text with the doctrinal truths of the rest of the Bible, which is being sensitive to systematic theology. Um, And it always situates the passage within the Bible's narrative or story, showing how Christ is the final fulfillment of the text's theme, which is being sensitive to... Um, biblical theology. Okay, so this is Tim Keller's, and really what that saying is, is when we sit down, and hopefully this is with any teaching, but for sure with preaching, you're sitting down and you're starting with God's Word. You immediately say, what does God's Word say? What, is, what does God want to share with us today? What, what, did the, what was the author's original intent? What was the context? All of those questions um, kind of come out of, of having this philosophy of expository, preaching. Now, one way of doing this is going verse by verse, passage by passage. And as a church, we try to do this, I would say two-thirds to 75% of the time, we try to preach verse by verse or passage by passage through books of the Bible. Okay? Again, this is, this is how the Bible was given to us, right? In books. The Bible, 66 books, they were given to us in books. We know books are meant to be read cover to cover. I mean, most books are. And so, Like, that's how we feel like should be most of the preaching should be. Should be going through books of the Bible, verse by verse, passage by passage. Not kind of skipping around and jumping, but trying to go in order through the books. Now, another way to do this is doing it topically, okay? Topically. Now, topically isn't, um, it's not a bad way to do it, but what is in danger of topical is that it really starts with the person, right? We're going to say, what topic do I want to talk about? And then we go to the text to say, what does the Bible say about this topic? And sometimes that's appropriate, right? And we do that probably a quarter of the time, a third of the time, because we feel like some stuff like finances or marriage or whatever else we feel like, or or the vision of the church. We feel like, hey, these are things that we need to stop and talk about. And that's fine, but it's a little bit dangerous because again, I can quickly say, well, what do I want the church to hear? What do I want the church to say about finances? What do I want to say about marriage? And so it's kind of like starting off on the wrong foot. I think it can be done, but it's a little bit trickier to do expository preaching through uh, going topical. Now, some people I think aren't really c- concerned about expository preaching, and it gets into a problem because someone just says, Oh, I, I think the church wants to hear this, or I just got a really cool idea, or I was reading a book, and I think the church needs to hear about this book. And then you just kind of start in and you say, Oh, yeah, I need to find some Bible to like support or to throw in there because this is a sermon and that's what sermons have. That's where it gets into problems. And we see in verse four that there, there may not be power there, right? Because it sounds like the source of the wisdom is coming from the preacher or the teacher in those moments, right? So again, we want to say if, if the power truly is in the word, the gospel, through the spirit, then that means we need to stick as close as we can to the word as, as much as we can. And so that's what we try to do as a church. Now, what is the tension here is, is I want to be a better preacher. And everyone up here, hopefully, that preaches wants to be a better preacher. So we want to work harder and improve our craft. But it's how are we explaining the gospel? How are we teaching the word? Are we using illustrations that highlight and explain better the texts? rather than um, how, how's my rhetoric or how, what do people think of me or um, I, I wish I could be funnier or, or I wish I could just be a better storyteller for the sake of telling stories. Again, that's where it gets. So there is a tension of trying to get better at, at preaching and, and preaching sermons in that way. Now, why do we, why do we um, I would say as a church, why is it important to remember that the power is in the spirit? I'm gonna list a few things here. So this is corporately. Um, if the power is in the word, um, then if, if, you, if you get away from the word, even as a, a preacher, um, if you get away from the word, then your words are no different than Oprah or Dr. Phil or maybe a, a show on Netflix or a documentary on Netflix that has a message that it's trying to preach, right? Because again, if the power is in the spirit, once you get away from the word and the gospel, then you've kind of moved into a place. And some of those things aren't bad, but they're supportive to what the Bible teaches, Okay, so if the power is in the, the word, and that's the source of it, then we want to stick close to the word. Second, um, we feel like um, it's a better way to read the Bible. I already touched on this a little bit, but again, the Bible was given to us in book form. It's better, we feel like, to go through books of the Bible because that's the way, if, if, these, if the original recipients, like 1 Corinthians, they would have read that letter from beginning to end, probably in one sitting when they first got that letter. So we want to try to preach as close to that as possible, number three, um, I think this will help you read your Bible at home. I think this will help read your Bible at home uh, because if you're if you're um, sitting down to read your Bible at home, I would always recommend having a plan, right? And and not doing one verse in the New Testament one day and then skipping over and doing another verse in the Old Testament and then jumping back to the New Testament do one verse like that. That's really not the way the Bible was meant to be read. I would encourage you to hey, pick a book and go through that book or find a uh, um, a Bible plan that has like a, a, a book from the Old Testament, a book from the New Testament, and read a little bit in both. But have a plan for going through books of the Bible. So if that's the way we think that you should read the Bible, then it makes sense that we would preach in that way. And the last one, kind of corporately, um, I think it keeps you dependent. If, thinking about the spirit, the power of in the spirit, it keeps you, um, I would say, more dependent on your own time in the Word and the time your missional community or small group um, spends in the Word. And here's what I mean. If you... If you are looking to the Sunday sermon or a podcasted sermon to be your primary source of, of kind of feeding on the Word, I think your growth will be stunted because you're, you're kind of drafting off other people's teaching. You're drafting off other people's interpretations and not digging in the Word and saying, what does this mean? And doing that hard work of, of trying to figure out what the text mean, and listening to the Spirit and then applying it to your own life. Does the Spirit speak through Sunday mornings? Absolutely. Can He speak through podcasts? Absolutely. Podcasts and sermons. But there's also, you, we have to be spending time in the Word on our own. And so if we're going to do that, and that's what we want you to do, the best thing to do, we think, is to again, set it up to where we're going to go through books of the Bible. And we give you plenty of tools to do that on your own, so you're not dependent upon a preacher or a sermon every week for your, your spiritual growth. Because, again, the Spirit can work through the Scriptures at home, just as much as they work through what we're doing right now. And we want you to be doing that on your own and not be dependent upon us. We want to create self-feeders here and not people who are dependent upon uh, myself or somebody else that is preaching. Now, last thing for individuals, and I'll close. Um, I said it briefly, but I think this helps our confidence in evangelism and ministry, right? So those of you who maybe are a little bit shy or you lack confidence in, in going out and allowing the Spirit to work through you, this should be really good news, Right? Because if the power is in the Spirit, then you're kind of off the hook as far as the weight not being on you. Now, do you need to be obedient and preach the gospel? Absolutely. But you don't have to go read a thousand-page book on the gospel to be able to go out and share the gospel. Know a little bit of your story. Talk a little bit about Jesus and pray like crazy the Spirit would move. Okay? It should take the weight off of us as we go throughout our days because we know the Spirit is the one that's giving us the power to do ministry and to preach the gospel and do those kinds of things. So as individuals, this, this, I think this passage is really good news for us. And we don't need to rely too much on our own wisdom. Because if we do that, typically we're going to feel like, well, I'm inadequate. I can't talk to them about that. Or I can't serve them in this way, that way, because it's depending on, on us and, and I'm inadequate. So I'm not going to do that. So it helps us as we kind of move out from here and live on mission. Let's pray. Father, I... Again, I thank you for your word and I thank you for um, in your um, sovereignty. This this church in Corinth, at least for us during the season, is so instructive for us. They were as we've seen, a mess. They didn't have things together. They didn't um, they weren't all living obedient lives to you and we can take comfort in that to some degree. We can kind of see um, through your lens as you were looking at this church and be able to reflect on um, us as a church, us as Providence Road, but also us as individuals that make up Providence Road Church. So I pray as we continue to work through this series, help us, empower us with your spirit. If what we see today is true, that this, the power relies uh, is, is uh, um, rests in the spirit and in the gospel, then we need to focus on those things and trust that you're going to continue to grow us and mature us and Grow us and mature us as a church. And we pray that you would do that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.